Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Be Hot Yoga Atlanta podcast. So Suzanne and I are here today. This is podcast number six, by the way. Suzanne and I are here today with Tiffany Andres Myers, who is teaching the mindfulness meditation class for Be Hot Yoga on Sundays um, at 2.45. Hi, Tiffany. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Excited to be a part of the Be Hot family. So tell us about a little bit about yourself. So what is your kind of background? How did you end up getting into meditation? And just, just tell us about a little bit about you. So uh, I am a uh, happily married mother of an almost 10-year-old boy. Um, and I have been practicing uh, yoga, meditation, and mindfulness for a little over six years. Uh, so I like, like to say that I had a quarter-life crisis at <laughs> about 25, and uh, I'm very happy it happened then and not later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Saved you a lot of time, really. It did, yeah. <laughs> it did. Uh, but yeah, I was... Um, Sort of my, my story is I, I spent my formative years sort of doing what I thought I was supposed to do in order to be happy and successful and have a life that felt fulfilling. Um, and at 25, I was graduating from Georgia Tech with my master's degree and published in a scientific journal. And my article made the cover of the journal, which, you know, are all of these things that are supposed to be this, you know, really... Uh, empowering and um, sort of on track for the right sort of life and success. And uh, I just sort of took a step back one day and, and reflected on the fact that I, it felt like I was constantly looking for that next success or next box to be checked in order to feel good enough, in order to feel happy. Um, and... So I, I took that moment as uh, a moment to just completely shift. And I was very lucky. I have a, a grandmother who's a Buddhist nun. Mm. Um, and I called her, as I often did, <laughs> in moments of what felt like crisis. And, and she said, come stay with me for a month at, at the monastery up in New York. And so I did that. Uh, I... Uh, left the job that I had lined up after graduation, um, separated from the person I was dating, moved out of my apartment, um, and drove uh, from Atlanta to Sydney Center, New York. And, wow, long drive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, my life has just never been the same since. So from there, ever since then, you've kind of been on this completely different path then. Yeah, I, uh, I joke, you know, I, I left the monastery and my mom had to fund my drive home. I, I didn't even have the money to get back to Atlanta. Uh, I had no job, no place to live. Um, and at that point, only my mouth and my dogs to feed. Uh, <laughs> but still, you know, to have spent 25 years... Um, feeling like what was going to help me feel happy and content would be having success and money and like all the basic needs met and to come home with none of my basic needs met and really for that to be the first time that I felt unafraid. Uh, I felt like I liked myself without any of the extraneous variables, you know, um, and I felt like life was beautiful. And for those things to be there and none of the other 
boxes that that I thought for so many years were were what gifted that to us as human beings. You know, um, I immediately started pursuing my yoga teacher certification and felt like if this could change my life so radically in a month, all human beings deserve access to it. Mm-hmm. So. Had you done meditation and that sort of thing before, like with your grandmother and, you know, before this happened or? I think it was in there somewhere. Um, my grandmother tells a story about me being five years old and, you know, I lived with her for a short time when I was around that age, kindergarten and first grade. And she would do her morning meditations and she tells the story of how I would come in some mornings on the weekend and come sit with her. Um, but of course, you know, that looked like a five-year-old sitting. So it was picking at my nails and (laughs) fidgeting around and, Uh, But I do remember riding my bike up and down the street in first grade singing Tibetan mantras. (laughs) So (laughs) I I think it's it's always in there. Um, And maybe it's, I have a little bit of a rebel spirit, but I feel like I had to find it on my own. Um, And I never really understood uh, what meditation was. You know, I never really understood why meditate or how to meditate or, you know, what am I doing when I did this? Um, and I think at some point I remember sitting in my bunk in my dorm room, calling my grandmother and asking for advice and having her say, well, try meditation. Uh, and maybe I did it once and Mm -hmm. it was just like, I I didn't get it. Mm Um, and so I don't know if it was the immersive experience or more of the connection in really the immediate connection to the benefit. Um, I mean, how often do we get silence and stillness? Mm-hmm. Never <laughs> really. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think it just had a profound impact coming out of, of being uh, so engrossed in a master's program and so engrossed in the, what I like to now call the human doing instead mm-hmm. of human being uh, and to take I remember I have a, a vivid energetic connection to the first meditation that I did at the monastery and 20 minutes of just being quiet and with myself. And, uh, at least in that moment, it was the most soft, peaceful and happy. I think I had ever felt. What was your, uh, study? What were you studying at tech? Uh, so at Georgia tech, um, I was in the ecology and evolutionary biology program, and my focus was on coral reef biology. So I was looking at uh, algal and coral interactions. Um, I still find this to be fascinating. You know, we've we've overfished so much in our oceans that we've removed a lot of the fish species that eat algae, and algae being super fast growing and coral being really slow growing. Uh, algae is starting to sort of outcompete coral on our reef systems. And so coral reefs are like the rainforests of the ocean. You know, it's where mm-hmm. all the biodiversity is. It's where uh, a lot of plant and animal species, that's where the babies kind of rear and find shelter and safety in order to get large enough to not just be picked off. Um, and so they're really crucial ecosystems in the oceanic environment for uh the health of our, our waterways and our oceans. Um, and so I, I was really lucky. I got to travel to Fiji to do research on, on coral reefs. Um, and, 
uh, yeah, just really enjoyed the, the research aspect and obviously now being a mindfulness and meditation and yoga teacher, I enjoyed the teaching aspect as well. Um, but the, the sort of fast paced, uh, doing the competitive nature of being in the university system, the politics of all of it. Um, I, I've learned really quickly it wasn't for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you did learn a lot about the uh, the human brain, though, right? I mean, that was a lot of part of what you studied. You probably heard you reference that. I found it really interesting. Yeah, so I tell people all the time, because my background was in ecology and evolutionary biology, I find the evolutionary history of human beings, which wasn't really my focus, um, but it is my focus now, uh, to be incredibly interesting and I had a friend that once introduced me, uh, t- he teaches at Georgia Tech, um, and I come in and, and teach the loving kindness meditation in his class every now and then, and he introduced me as uh, having my degree in ecology and evolutionary biology, and now I help people evolve through <laughs> the practice of <laughs> mindfulness and meditation, and I was like, oh, I'm going to use that. Uh, I've been saying for so long I don't use my degree. This is perfect. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's empowering that we are uh, blessed enough to live in a time and a space where, uh, you know, meditation and mindfulness are practices that have been around for 2,500 years or more. You know, 2,500 is just a number I can place on it. Um, and for most of those years, 2,400 of them, people have just trusted the practices. You know, they've, they've done the practices themselves and they've seen, felt, and experienced the benefits. And I think it's why it's lasted for so long. You know, we, we see in our culture so many self-help books. Um, there's the new fad of self-help all the time. And this is something that it's, you know, stuck through the ages. Uh, but I feel so lucky to be in a time and space where we have all this uh, science and research that now backs up these practices that have been around for 2,500 years. And so the evolutionary biologist in me finds the science to be so fascinating, Mm -hmm. thinking about how human beings evolved on this planet for millions of years and how drastically different our societies are now from just 100 or a few hundred years ago. And here we are wrestling with uh, these new ways of living and being with minds that uh, haven't probably caught up to the technological advances that we're experiencing now. Uh, and so it's, it's a really interesting time to be a meditator. Well, and the pace of our life now, like you said, how often do you get a chance to really be quiet and still? And it, it just, the way the world works right now, people don't get that very often unless they have a meditation practice or something very deliberate. Yeah, it, it's thinking about the, what people probably experienced in our cultures for most of human beings being on, on this planet, it looks very different than what we experience now. And I remind myself often, you know, that our struggle for survival might look different, but all in all, our human mind was, was designed to make sure that we survive, you Mm -hmm. know? And so, uh, 
the anxiety, the depression, the, the hypervigilance that most of us experience on a day-to-day is just a product of a brain that's designed to make sure we can live to see the next day. Um, and those threats to our survival when we were hunter-gatherers on the plains, um, when we lived in nomadic societies, look very different than they do now. And the pace of living was so much different. You know, mm-hmm. uh, our needs were to find food and shelter. And now most of the time we have food and shelter. Uh, so everything has become uh, sort of the fast-paced fight to keep it. Um, it's, it's, it's just wildly interesting to me. Uh, I, I read in a book by Andrew Alinsky called Untangling Self, which is just one of my favorite books. Um, He talks about how uh, we're really not evolved beings. And in reading that, it was startling at first, you know, because I feel like we experience ourselves as very highly evolved. But from the evolutionary history of ourselves, uh, our minds really still work like we're nomadic. Our minds really still work like around any corner there's a threat to our survival Mm -hmm. Um, and so now an email has become a lion you know or someone cutting us off in traffic (laughs) is uh, an arrow flying at us that's maybe been poisoned by some remote frog uh, (laughs) secretion Um, yeah well you said something interesting today about how our brains are really wired to focus on the negative and let the positive go and not really pay that much attention to that and when I thought that was so interesting but very evolutionarily helpful to us in the past but not really so helpful now yeah I I, makes us crazy I I think um, my favorite example of this is uh, my we have a wonderful tradition in, in my family. Um, uh, my son's father and his wife, every Christmas Eve, they come and spend the night at our house. And we all do Christmas morning together. And so last year, they parked the car in the driveway and we drove them to the airport and they all went on a trip together. And the next day, I get in my car and I go to back the car out. And it's like, as soon as I hit the gas that I remember, oh my God, their car's in the driveway, right? And so I slam on the brakes, didn't hit the car, right? And there was a mini celebration, like, oh my gosh, I didn't hit the car. Good job to me for remembering. But it was probably 30 seconds later that I had moved on, right? Of course I moved on because I didn't hit the car. Mm -hmm. But what if I had hit the car? And it, it occurred to me maybe like three minutes later, wow, I didn't hit the car, you know, and that's great. But I probably would have replayed that experience in my head over and over again for the next three months. Right. If right. I had actually if it hit had been the a car. negative experience. Right. right. But because it was a positive experience or it was a good one, I was over it in yeah. 30 seconds, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's even uncommon that we let that be a little win. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time we just, we just move on immediately, but even spending 10 seconds on the small things and letting them be wins or joys is kind of uncommon mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, I, I remember being 21 and sending emails to grad schools and I wrote one where I wrote the wrong professor's name 
in the email. And uh, I remember that. Right, still. Yeah. Yeah, and you're still probably beat yourself up over it a little bit. Yeah. Right, well, yeah. definitely not getting into that program. Right. Yeah, but, it, you know, that, that aspect of our mind at one point was really, really important for our survival. Uh, when we made mistakes in uh, nomadic human societies, when we made mistakes within a group, let's say we became socially awkward or uncomfortable in a group, if we were ostracized from that group, no human in that situation could survive alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so it speaks to our need now for companionship, for closeness, uh, which I revel in and think is wonderful. Um, but the same thing is true of uh, if we walked into the wrong space on a hunt and, you know, we walk into a bear den or a lion's den, we need to remember that that is not a space we go into, mm -hmm. you know. And so our minds were designed to remember uh, any time there was fear or negativity or any concern for survival whatsoever. And we do the same things now. Mm -hmm. But we do it with things that are so small. And so I, I think now we're beginning to see that, that we make small things really big only when they're bad. Right. But we, we very often don't make small things really big if they're great. Right. Right. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. So how and tell so tell us how meditation then can help us <laughs> maybe kind of uh, come back into a little bit more balance. Uh, yeah. And particularly the mindfulness meditation that you that you teach and practice. So this is this is where I think I think mindfulness and, and the practice of meditation, which helps us to create a mindful experience in our lives, is, is so beautiful just from the, the base of the idea because what we're really doing is, is waking up to ourselves. We're, we're waking up to the experience of being alive in every moment. And, you know, when I first started teaching mindfulness and meditation, Every single seminar or class I taught was called Falling in Love with Life. Uh, and I don't do that anymore, but maybe I should continue it. I love that. That's yeah. Great. Well, I, I think it's because in this very real way, we give ourselves permission to let little things be joyous, right? Um, to start seeing and experiencing even the most mundane moments, of our lives. And it might be that uh, without being awake, uh, I don't know, let's estimate 10% of your, of our life is like really big things. Do you mm -hmm. think that's fair? If that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So out of a hundred percent of our lives, we're awake for 10%. Mm -hmm. And so I think mindfulness in essence is like tipping the scale and letting every moment hold the possibility of being miraculous enough to become a 10 percenter, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. um, and just in a, a silly example, I was walking down Peachtree Street last year uh, to teach a mindfulness seminar, a one hour seminar at an advertising firm in Midtown and uh, my son's father lives on 12th Street, so I've walked Peachtree and 12th 
you know, to 14th, probably hundreds of times at this point. Uh, but I had just finished a meditation, so I guess I was feeling particularly present and aware. And it's been over a year, and I remember the quality of that walk. I remember looking up and on the top of the building at the corner of Peachtree and 14th, there was some guy in this bright yellow shirt who looked like an ant, you know? <laughs> I don't, I still have no idea what he was doing up there. <laughs> but it just provided me so much joy to see this arbitrary man on the roof of a building and have this curiosity show up of what he could possibly be doing. Um, and I remember the color of the trees and the feeling of my feet on the ground as I walked. And so by all accounts, I bring that up just to say that was a meaningless moment, right? But it was a meaningless moment that now a year later still holds incredible value. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think if we really get into the intentionality of mindfulness uh, and meditation as, as the root or the practice that gets us there, uh, it's about being here. It's about feeling our lives and letting each moment be rich with just being human and being alive. Um, I think that it, it makes me think of like how we all think, feel of like time goes by so fast and, you know, we're, everything just like slips over the years, you know, it just feels that way. But the way you describe like that walk, it's like you really can be here, you know, and enjoy the time that you have instead of just feeling like it's all getting away from us because we're not really present or really paying attention to, to the time that we actually have. Yeah, it's, it's living in a sense, cherishing each moment with the uncertainty that we don't know which one will be the last, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I think I thought for a long time that meditation was supposed to make life less life and me less human, if that makes sense. Uh, like somehow by meditating, uh, stressors wouldn't happen. Or somehow by meditating, um, I wouldn't have emotional reactions to things, right? And I kind of think it's important for people to know that, that that's not the case. I think Honestly, I think one of the biggest and most beautiful reasons to practice meditation and mindfulness is that life will always be life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, and uncertain. And we will always be human. Yeah. yeah and certain things always happen. Um, and, and uh, you know, so having the, I guess in a sense sometimes, and, and maybe this is just pointing to moments of difficulty in, in particular, but having a the wherewithal and the space to choose how we interact with those moments of difficulty, you know, the moments of suffering. I, I think it's, it's an innate part of our experience as human beings that we're going to suffer. Um, and I think in so many of the teachings and my own experience, what I'm learning is, is that what we have a little more power with is the suffering of our suffering, you know? So maybe, maybe that's sort of the key difference. It's not that, uh, meditation means we'll never suffer, right? But it does mean we lessen the suffering from our suffering. Hmm. Um, and, and we can see the world a little more openly and clearly and not from so much conditioning and history. Uh, and I, I think, 
I, I think my um, relationship with my son is probably where I've seen the biggest change in my own life. Um, and it's because, you know, when he came into my life, he was three. Um, and, oh, I just fell in love with that little boy. But more than anyone in my life, he knows how to push my buttons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, he's, he's not even my, my DNA, but he, uh, he, he knows me and he knows me well enough to be able to, to say the right thing that I can feel in my heart and in my body and in my chest a constriction and, and it's completely out of my control. So that's sort of what I mean about the, we're all going to suffer, right? And, mm-hmm. and that for a long time, when I felt angry at him for pushing my buttons, for a long time, I felt angry with myself for being angry. And mm-hmm. there's the suffering of the suffering, mm-hmm. right? And what I've learned through practice now is, is I'm still going to be human. I'm still going to have emotional reactions. But now I can see the anger and I can feel the anger in my body and let it be a, a source of human connection because if he's being mouthy, he probably feels exactly the same way I do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that that space to connect rather than disconnect. Or deny, sort of, or yeah. cover up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I'm not reactionary as much. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm in that way, hopefully I'm teaching him that he doesn't have to be reactionary. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's, it's not that I'm going to be less human or less conditioned because my re- innate response is conditioned, mm-hmm. you know, in some way I've got to give myself that permission to let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, what arises in the body and in the mind is largely out of our control. But when we practice or involve ourselves with practices that give us space to see and feel before we outwardly respond, mm-hmm then, wow, we have so much more choice. Mm-hmm. We have so much more connection. Uh, and we can choose connection. We can choose love instead of choosing the suffering of the suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we've really enjoyed the the practice that you've been doing at, at the studio. I mean, it's just been really, the times that I've been able to take the class, it's really been wonderful. Um, and I know Suzanne's really enjoyed it as well. So... We're looking forward to more. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, Thank you so much. Yeah, 